Amen. Amen. Good morning. Ah, great worship. What are you thankful for? I was thinking about that uh, this week. I'm quick to complain. I'm quick to mumble. Uh, Ask my wife if you don't believe me. I know that's hard for you guys to understand. (laughs) But I feel like the Lord asked me, what are you thankful for? You know, in the newspaper, I've said before, growing up, I would always grab the cartoon page, and I would look in the family circus comics, and I'm reminded of this little first grader. Uh, I guess it was around Thanksgiving season, and the teacher asked the little first grader, why are you thankful? What makes you thankful? She asked the entire class, and, and they wrote down their answers, and she reads little Johnny's note, and little Johnny says, I'm thankful for that I'm not a turkey. Now, he was right. It was Thanksgiving season. That's good. But I think for us, the Christian, we may find ourselves even more profoundly thankful If we were to grapple for just a half an hour about what the Lord Jesus Christ has did for us, that we are indeed, all of us, theologically turkeys. And from God's perspective, that's what I want us to see, from God's perspective against the backdrop of his holiness, we are, as I hope we were taught as kids, the times we are a sinful people who have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible reiterates that painful point over and over to us again and again. But the profoundly thankful part of that is we are spared, more than spared, in Christ. And that's the key, in Christ, we are completely forgiven. We are totally accepted Deeply, as Ephesians says, in the beloved, we are adopted. We are guaranteed a future of prosperity and blessings with God in heaven one of these days. And we're not headed for destruction. That's good news. That's good news to me. I hope that's good news for you this morning. That's profoundly good news that the Corinthians really had lost sight of. And when you lose sight of that, everything else starts to fall apart. See, when you're not enamored with that central theme of the Christian message, everything else slowly begins to erode into despair. And that's what was the problem for the Corinthians. Last week, we were introduced to some of the problems in Corinth, We found that they were coming to church, that's good and well, but for themselves, with a real self-focus, what they could get out of it. And Paul gives them the remedy very quickly. 1 Corinthians 11 says, by looking at some of the problems, so you can turn with me there, but before you get to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has the antidote for them in 1 Corinthians 10. The solution, the fix, 
for the problem of a self-centered Christianity. He gives them the focus that they should have and is centered on the primary theme of Christianity. That should spark in us a real, genuine, heartfelt gratitude. This timing is very apropos for us because the context here is about the Lord's Supper. The focus is on the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. And maybe you grew up with this word over the Lord's Supper, and that word is Eucharist. Eucharist is one of those strange words that we have just taken from the Greek, and we've transliterated it into English. The difference between a translation and transliteration, well, I'll give you the example. We'll take the Greek word baptizo, since we're having one after service, If you were to translate it, we know baptism means, of course, to dip or to dunk or to submerge. But if you were to transliterate it, all you would do is just bring it over to the English language and turn baptizo into baptize. Doesn't really translate it for us. It just brings the Greek word into our English language. Eucharist is the same way. Eucharist is a word that we've just kind of thrown into the English. Eucharistia is the Greek word. And Eucharistias does not mean the Lord's Supper. It does not mean communion. Eucharistia in Scripture over 50 times in the New Testament is simply the word for thanksgiving or being thankful. That's what the word means And in this early church, they began to take this ritual meal called communion or the Lord's Supper, and they began to attach the word Eucharistia to it, thanksgiving, because they understood that this is really the central issue of Christianity. And what it should spark in us is a great deal of genuine, heartfelt, sincere gratitude, So they started calling it the cup of thanksgiving, something that we should be truly thankful for. As a matter of fact, if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you're in the wrong place. (laughs) Look at verse 16. If you are in 1 Corinthians 10, you might remember as Paul was talking to the Corinthian people that don't do not eat your meals at the idol's temple because they thought they were, they were going there and they, they thought it was fine. He said, don't do that. Verse 16 says, Paul says, the cup of blessing, thanksgiving, which we bless, is not the communion of the blood of Christ? He asked that question. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Paul says, aren't we connecting here profoundly with the whole thing of the death of Christ? In this cup, but he calls it once again the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. In chapter 11, even in the midst of the recollection of the institution of this supper, we see Christ giving thanks for this meal. He says in verse 23 of chapter 11, We I say this every first Sunday, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, 
on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and then he goes on with the rest of it. If you come from a Jewish background, you might remember the Passover Seder. That's really the foundation on which the communion is predicated on. If you grew up in that setting, you remember four cups of wine that were symbolizing the four aspects of redemption from Egypt. And all of that is all surrounded by a real profound thanksgiving. We give thanks for God's deliverance, and the communion service was just the model of that. It was taking it to the ultimate level, Jesus did, the level of Christ for taking away our sins and redeeming us, not just from Egypt, but from our ultimate destiny, the judgment of God. Thanksgiving ought to be the one thing that awakens a sleepy church. It ought to be the one thing that focuses us. It ought to be the one thing that we keep in mind if we're going to be a healthy Christian in a healthy church. As a matter of fact, this wasn't a new solution to the same problem that Christians have had for generations. Maybe Paul had it in mind when he quotes Psalms 50 here. The Hebrew songbook was written by a guy by the name of Asaph, and he lets him, he lets God indict the people with these lyrics because they had forgotten about God. They gathered for worship, but they really weren't focused on God. Much like when Christ repeats the words of Isaiah, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They really do not know me. His solution for the problem for the people being self-focused in worship of forgetting God and putting God to the sidelines is for us to become truly thankful for what God has done. And that's all Paul does here in this teaching. The solution is the same this morning. Let's think about what we've got. Let's remember what God has done on our behalf. And let us be thankful. The communion service, this communion meal, this ritual meal predicated on the Passover was one that he now looks into. Verse 24 says, and when he had given thanks, speaking of Jesus, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, which is a stinging reminder for us. He says, do this in remembrance of me. That's what they weren't doing. They weren't really focused on Christ in Corinth. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's kind of dark. You know, if you're kind of anesthetized by it or inoculated by it, but if you're new to it, to this, you look at it and think that's pretty dark. The main thing these Christians celebrate, the main thing we tell people about 
is Christ's death, the leader that died for us, but then he resurrected. And I'll tell you, it's more than strange. It's offensive to some people unless you catch the idea why this was necessary, and that's what we want to look at. So we begin this morning with a simple reminder, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we don't see ourselves that way, when you see something like this, we celebrate a death that takes the place of our own death. We will struggle with that. I was thinking about it, and I said, I I think I've got an example. After church is over, Everybody likes to gather in the hall and talk or gather in the overflow room. And uh, if I were to come up to any of you and say, hey, I'm glad I caught you because I wanted to talk to you. I just wanted to let you know that I forgive you. That would be strange to you. I forgive you. Did you hear me? I forgive you. You'd probably look at me crazy. What's wrong with PV? Is he crazy or something? Oh, you know, don't don't think about it. But I just want you to know that I forgive you. And you're thinking, this guy's crazy. I haven't did anything to him. And I finally say, well, I forgive you. Your debt has been paid for. Have a nice week. And you leave. You'd be calling 911 saying I was crazy or something. See, you're not going to leave happy with that kind of exchange with me. You don't like me saying, I forgive you. If you don't think you did anything wrong, that's that's where the hook is. So the idea of this passage has to be set in the context of the need. And when we see the need, now all of a sudden, the communion service and the focus on the death of Christ becomes profoundly significant. As a matter of fact, you can sum it up in two words, really. The words that ought to be the fixation of every Christian. We ought to always remember and never forget, particularly in the light of the Lord's Supper. We ought to never forget to be thankful for God's grace. That's what it comes down to, the grace of God. The grace of God is seeing a need and meeting that need without any cause attached in terms of not having to earn it. It's a gift of God. We couldn't fix the problem, but he's fixed it for us. It reminds me, and I have to tell him myself, I love the movie. I love the movie before the big movie came out, The Titanic. I used to watch it every time in black and white. So when the new one came out, it was pretty good. But it was a guy on that big ocean liner, his name was John Harper, who tried to get everybody into the lifeboats because he was a self-sacrificing man. He was the pastor of Moody Church. And on the voyage from Southampton out into the Atlantic, that whole thing was about people recognizing their need and getting into the lifeboats. There was 22,000 people on the Titanic. They put only 12,000 seats, 1,200 seats 
on the lifeboats. They didn't think it was going to sink. The problem came when it began to start tilting over. They still didn't think it was going to sink. And so they started rushing these lifeboats out into the Atlantic, 1,200 seats aboard. You know how many people got on them? 750, because they didn't see their need. They said, oh, surely this thing is not tilting. Surely it's not going to submerge in the Atlantic, for the lifeboats were already ready for them. 700 people got onto those lifeboats when all 1,200 could have been saved. That's what this message is about. We like to, people say all the time when destructions and bad things come our way, how can a loving God do this, allow this to happen to me? How can a loving God send anyone to hell? We need to get on the lifeboat. They cried, I don't see the need. I don't think this is important. And grace is understanding that there is a great need. And at the end of this life, if we don't get it right down here, and if we don't see our sins and get them absolved and taken care of, we're all going to face the judgment of God. The profoundly thankful part is, Though God has provided a lifeboat in his son, Jesus Christ, and he invites us into the lifeboat, well, let me scratch that. He calls us, he orders us into the lifeboat. And though it's ultimately, this world is going to go down, if we get into the lifeboat of Jesus Christ, we can have life eternal. At the end of this life, if we don't choose Jesus Christ, it's something where God says, I don't deserve it, but I'm going to provide a way for you anyway in Jesus Christ, that you will get to heaven on the coattails of Christ, not on your own merit. Don't get it twisted. No one is perfect. No one has lived a perfect life down here but one, our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys know I like sports. Football season coming up. I'm going to be low. I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to talk that much about Alabama because we might not win again. <laughs> but I was checking out Sports Center. And thank God this guy was saying that his mom didn't throw away his baseball cards collection. Tommy had a card collection. Uh, he, he really had a future stars card. So you had a couple of more people on there, just not an individual picture. Have you ever guys ever heard of a guy named by Jeff Snyder? Never heard of him? Jeff Snyder, because he only played one year in the majors, he was a pitcher who pitched 11 games. He gave up 13 runs. I might could have did that well in those 11 games. He hung up his glove and said, forget it. I'm not going to do it. Well, right next to Jeff Snyder is a guy you probably, you probably heard of who played for 21 years in the majors, over 3,000 games, batted 400-plus uh, home runs, 14,000 
attempts at bats. His name was Cal Ripken. You've heard of him. Little skinny Cal Ripken in his Baltimore Orioles cap, sitting right next to Jeff Snyder. Here's the thing. If you meet Jeff Snyder and he comes up to you and says, I want to tell you about my rookie card, it's worth over $100 today. Understand what you're hearing is something analogous to grace. See, he's got a whole truckload of these cards, and he's probably put his children through college with them. It's very nice of him, but those cards are valuable, not because Snyder is on it. The card is valuable because Cal Ripken is on the picture as a rookie. That's what makes this card so valuable, over $100 for a baseball card. That's what it's all about. One day, one day, you and I will stand before a holy God, and he will say, what are you going to do with yourself now? And if you're there on your own, you're in big trouble, by the way. But the great news is God is willing to have Christ applied to your account. And if you and Christ stand together on that day, you'll be okay. Matter of fact, you'll be fine. The righteousness of Christ will be applied to your life, and you will be in. That's what God is asking us to do this morning, to recognize that our life is characterized by a celebration of his grace, that we often sometimes think from God that we don't deserve and we don't. His grace has provided to us, and it's, it's, it's an example for us. Matter of fact, John 3.16 tells us, and this is the first piece of scripture many people had learned. I was one of them. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You're looking at a passage and you say, I don't see the connection there. But that's because one of those words are camouflaged. It means something else in the English translation. Back to Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, for I receive from the Lord, which by way is the word parolambano. Received parolambano. What I also passed on, he passed on paradidomy. He handed it over to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was paradidomy, I'm going to use this word betrayed probably two more times, and I don't want us ever to see it as the same word again when you're reading your text. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was paradidomy, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, I've got a question for you in that little statement. Who betrayed Christ? Who betrayed him? You probably would never name your kids that name, Judas. No trick question. He, he betrayed Christ. Is Judas a good guy or a bad guy? You say he's a bad guy. Remember, he's selling Christ out in treachery, in secrecy. He kissed him. The whole scene is bad, not good. People don't like Judas. I don't know a parent 
that has named their child Judas. That's how notorious he is. Paul never mentions Judas one time in all of his 13 letters. He never mentions him one time. And more importantly, every time of the 19 times he uses the verb paradidomi, it's never translated in any context to be thinking of betrayal. It's never translated in any context to mean that someone had violated someone's trust. As a matter of fact, here's how Paul uses the word paradidomy. Romans chapter 425, it says, he, that is Christ, was paradidomy delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In that verse, who paradidomied Christ over to death? In that verse I just looked at, it was God. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Huh, y'all don't have to tell me. I know he's good. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? Of course, for us, it was a good thing. I'm so glad he did because he didn't. If he didn't, we'd be in a heap of trouble. We needed Christ. Now, Romans 8, we're going to use the same verb, the same word. This is the, he uses this twice right here of the 19 examples that we could look in Paul's writing where he likes to use the word paradidomy to talk about the provision of Christ for our sins. He, Romans 8, 32, he, that is the father who did not spare, that word spare, paradidomy, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously graciously give us all things? Once again, the father paradidded me his own son. He gave him over. He was delivered. He continues over to death for our sins and was raised to life. This is a consistent way that Paul likes to use the verb paradidomy. He was handed over from God to us to meet our need, to meet our need. Now, Paul, I'm sure, was carrying the Septuagint around. He wrote his 13 letters, the Septuagint translated there. In Isaiah 53, I'm going to read the passage, and this is through the Septuagint. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has paradidomied, laid on him the iniquity of us all. God gave him over for our sins. That's how the Septuagint reads. The idea of our sin and our need and we needed someone to paradidomy, to, to, to take it over Christ, over to meet those needs. It's much like the first verse you ever learned, I just quoted before. For God so loved the world that he paradidomy, he gave. That's the word. There was no treachery involved. There was no deception involved. It wasn't that Jesus looked around and said, Father, you mean, what are you doing? He gave him over. Jesus knew what time it was. From the foundations of the world, he knew that the Father 
would hand him over. And that's what Paul is trying to get the church of Corinth to see, because if you see it that way, it makes a great difference. Now, back to our passes. Let's scratch out the word betrayed, because that's not really the word that belongs there. The idea is a negative one when we see betrayed. Paul doesn't want to conjure up ideas of treachery and betrayal with that kiss and all that. He's trying to get us to see that God loves us so much that he's meeting a need on the night that Jesus was handed over. I like that, handed over for us. He came to meet our need the night that God showed his love in the most extreme way. John 13, 1 says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He showed him now the full extent of his love. This is how much I love you. You know, people can say that all the time. I love you. I love you. God says, no, love is an action. I'm going to show you. I'm going to do for you. He was handed over to the cross. He was going to be, become the sacrifice that we needed to atone for our sins. So scratch that word betrayed. Let's just put handed over. He was given over lovingly to meet our need. And that's huge. The idea should be one of gratitude. That's the idea. It should be one of why the Christian church should be so thankful. What an incredible thing this was for God to do this kind of act of grace. And by the way, if you miss the grace part, look at verse 24. It gets even clearer when after the statement, he had given thanks. After he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. What's the next two words there? For you. You see, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Jesus takes the bread, he breaks and says, this is my body, which is for you. Now, I, don't, I really don't want to get stuck on this, but I want you to see it. There's a lot of ways that in the Greek, and usually it's real, when he says for you, it's real simple. But he says this in the most emphatic way he can. He says, this is for you. You know, fellas, remember they're around the, the, the Seder table. He says, this is for you. This is for your benefit, on your behalf for your good, because why? Because I love you, and you need this. It's for you, and you've got to have it. God loved us so much that he gave his son for us. He paradidomied. He handed him over the sacrifice of his own son to the cross, to the wrath of God, so that one day, we wouldn't have to incur it. That's what it's all about, you guys. Christ took the hit for us so that we wouldn't have to. I know y'all have been watching the news, listening to the radio about the catastrophic uh, fires in Maui. That's sad. Firefighters, they tell me that when you light 
those backfires when a fire is going, you might say, what's the point? There's already one fire, but you're going to light one right here. They light the backfire, so when fires come, there's nothing else to burn. That's exactly what the picture of the cross is about. There is nothing else for God's holy wrath to consume. If we stand in the shadow of the cross, because his anger has been spent, we just got to stand in that spot if we don't want to get burned up by his wrath. We're in trouble if we don't stand there. But get in the lifeboat, and the lifeboat is a place where there's no more anger. There's no more holy, righteous wrath to be spent. You've been forgiven, and that's grace. It's what it's all about this morning, the grace of God, God's grace. It ought to be the one thing that enamors the church. It ought to be the one thing that we are fixated on. And when that happens, Paul is telling the church of Corinth, you know what? There's not a lot of room for all the kind of haughtiness and all any room left for being arrogant and divisive, those kind of attitudes that was going on in Corinth. You can see why Paul doesn't start a 12-step program of relational unity or harmony, know what he does. He says, let's get back to the basics. You guys need to get more enamored with the grace of God. That's what it's about. Bound up in the simple and central truth of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And you'll be fine when you really just meditate on what Jesus did. You won't have clicks. You won't be fighting. You won't be elbowing your way through the ministry there in Corinth. You'll be fine. But you got to keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Remember the gift of God. Remember that God so loved, he gave his son on our behalf. Always remember and be thankful for God's grace. Once you do that, once we do that, be sure to focus on the person of Jesus Christ that paid the price. You can't miss it then. Verse 23 and 24, the fact that this body was broken, he breaks his bread. And again, it's dark, very dark, isn't it? Verse 26, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death. We celebrate his death until he comes. And more than that, this cup is a cup that's supposed to remind us of the spilt blood. So we got pictures, we got intangible expression here of broken bodies and, and spilt blood. That, that's pretty much a downer. But more than that, you know what it is? It's, it's really a gruesome look into the price of forgiveness that Jesus paid. It's not just God's grace that we celebrate, that God so loved us that he wanted to fix the problem we had. It's how much it cost him to fix the problem. That ought to enamor us. That ought to make us celebrate no matter what we go through down here, that somebody loves us that much. This was very costly. 
This wasn't cheap. The God in heaven just didn't say, let's, let's think about it. What should we do? They knew what time it was from the foundation of the world. God is God because he's holy and just. He has got to deal with sin. God's character would be impugned and that there would be a blot on his record if he did not. There's got to be a payment for sin. God knew that. And so we have to focus on the sacrifice of Christ. So number one, focus on the grace of God. And then always remember and always be thankful for Christ's sacrifice. The cost attached to it, but it was paid for us. It's a reminder way back to the Passover meal, which was really the foundation of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that ritual. Think about it, the Passover. We got this angel of death. He's coming on the way and killing all the firstborn males in Egypt for their not being obedient to apply the blood on that door. Even though God had told them he's coming, that wasn't good enough from God's perspective. The wages of sin always has been, always will be, is death. There's only one normal solution to this. And God says, I'll provide a protection for anyone who would take this lamb, this little lamb, starts, he's outside. It reminds me of my dog. I got two dogs. Not these two I have now, but I had a dog that I kept outside, but I loved him so much, I finally brought him in. He became a house dog. That was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. But uh, just think, this little lamb, feed him every day, and then you bring him in the house from the 10th to the 14th, and he becomes cuddly, and you become to feel affectionate for him. Where's the remote control? Oh, he's under the lamb. That's where my remote control always is. The dog loves to sit on him. And when the 14th day comes, you know the account. Where's my buck knife? I've got to slit this little lamb's throat. While all of the kids are crying, no, daddy, don't do it, don't do it, but I've got to be obedient to God. Slit his throat. Let the blood drain into the basin. I don't even know why I'm doing this, but God told me, and take that blood outside and paint it on the lentil and the doorpost and sit there. God told me. And while all the screaming is going on from those people who were not obedient to that, the death angel comes by the house and does not stop. That's what obedience will do for you, getting off the trail now. That's what obedience will do for you. When everyone is saying, no, uh, throw in the towel, give up the ship, God's not going to come through, keep following the Lord. Keep following him. And that's what the Seder is about. That's what the communion table is about. God is saying at this supper, hey, this is about me. The worship should be about me. The fellowship should be about me. 
Everything you do should be about me for the great price I have paid for you. Please do that. That's what Paul is trying to tell him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 10 says this, because I wonder sometimes, I'm a crazy guy, I think strange things sometimes. I'm thinking, God, if all you had to do was to take care of my sin, why didn't you call Jesus down 10 minutes before he went to the cross, let him die on the cross, go back to heaven, sit in his lazy boy, and everything will be okay? Why did he have to spend 33 years down here on this God-forsaken planet? Because there were two things he had to take care of. He had to take care of my sins, your sins. That's what he did. But then somebody's got to live a righteous life too. Remember when he was getting baptized? John the Baptist, he goes to John the Baptist, John... Permit me, I don't, no, you should be baptizing me. And what did Jesus say? I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. He had to live a perfect life. He just didn't have to come down here and die for our sins, but he had to walk the walk. That's so important. Hebrews 10, 5 through 10 says, I'll prove it to you. Therefore, when he came into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I'm tired of those bulls and goats. That's not going to answer the problem. But a body you have prepared for me. <laughs> In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. All of those goats, all of those bulls, all those sheep they were throwing on the altar. He was, God was probably had a stench saying, man, I'll be glad when my son comes. They do that now. This is just a covering for their sins. I'll be glad when the truth comes and I can take my hand from my nose and my mouth because that will be refreshing. He says, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, consider this. I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and, and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's what he had to do. He had to come. He had to live a perfect life, and then he had to take care of our sins. And we need to keep the focus on Jesus Christ, the great work that he did, the great work that he does by sending the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. We're going through the book of Nehemiah on Wednesday, and I love it when when we went through the book of Ezra, it always says about Ezra and Nehemiah, the good hand of the Lord was upon them. Well, the good hand of the Lord is all on his believers, but we need to live like it. We need to act like it. We need to have that confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. No matter what trial, no matter tribulation, whatever we're going through down here, the good hand of the Lord is upon us. And he's working things out for our good. Jesus knew that. 
That's what it's about. Hebrews 10.4 says this, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Needed a spotless human flesh. And that's what Jesus came down here to do. All because he loves us. All because he wants us to be fixated on the grace of God, on the privilege that he has revealed himself to us. No matter what we go through down here, and I don't say that trivially, I don't say that slightly. But we have to keep our eyes on the prize, and the prize is Jesus Christ. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. That's the cry that Revelation speaks of one of these days. And that's what we have to keep our eyes on. God is good. He's always been good. He can't be anything else but good. We need to recognize the high cost. And here's the thing. If the Corinthians could be in that much in love with Jesus Christ, if they were enamored and focused on Jesus Christ, they wouldn't have the problems they're having. Do you think they'd be fighting with each other, cliques, Lacks of forgiveness, not putting each other's needs before their own? No, not if they were focusing on Christ. They wouldn't have that kind of problem. Paul says, listen, you've got to love Christ more. How do you do that? First, be thankful. Recognize the high cost of our forgiveness. I like what John 13, 34, 35 says, Jesus speaking to his boys. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's hard, but it can be done to get our eyes off our circumstances and all those other things and put your eyes on Christ. Remember what he's done for us. Take the communion at home. When you, when, the next time I implore you, when things are turned upside down and you really can't see how you're going to get out of this mess, or you've been praying a long time, find some saltine crackers at home. Get some Welch's grape juice and sit down with the Lord and remember his supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, you, you gave it all up for me. And it wasn't so much of a betrayal. Emily, you can come up. It wasn't so much of a betrayal. You were handed over for me. That's how much you love me. I think it's Romans that said, how much more will you give me all things? If you did this, isn't it Romans? If you did this, gave your only begotten son, you're going to get this car fixed. This house note's going to get paid. You're not going to be living out in the streets, Vic. I'm going to nurse you to health if be my will, but if not my will, enjoy the ride as much as you can. 
I'm going to keep my eye on you. I'm going to keep my loving hand on me, on you. And one day you're going to awaken in my arms. That's how much I love you. Somebody told me he's committed. He's committed to us. He's committed to us. When God could swear by no one else, he sweared by himself. He told Abraham. That's what he's done for us. He's committed to us. Let's walk with confidence. Let's have the joy of the Lord. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Satan wants us downcast. He wants a, 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 a world to see his children downcast, broken. Oh, man, I need to join the Christians. They're so happy. Huh. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and we show that. We have confidence in the Lord. And when we start losing that confidence, it's because we've taken our eyes off our sweet Savior. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He told us in this life we were going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. I have not forgotten about you. I will not forget about you. I know you're, you're lying down and you're uprising. My thoughts of you are the, like the sand on the seashore, and I love you. Let's pray. Father God, remind all of us, but really remind those who might be going through hard times, who's been going through hard times for a while, that you are faithful, that you are a loving God. You've shown your love. And if we would remember the great price that would paid for us, Father, that should give us confidence. That should give us, energize us to follow you no matter what. Because you are good. You are the faithful gun. You have the power to do what you say. Your plans, your actions will win the day. You're an omnipotent God who holds all power and all authority in your hand. That's the God we need to magnify. That's the God we need to boast on. Lord, I pray that if, just for the hurting hearts and the sad hearts, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would encourage all of us to run this race with confidence, knowing that you're the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.